0: Hello there, welcome to Jeff's House of Horrors and Coffee. Come right in. Do you believe in ghosts? After all, it's October, and October is Halloween month on Coffee with Jeff. Come in, kiddies, and sit by the fire on this dark and stormy morning, and I'll tell you a couple of true, terrifying, creepy ghost stories. Three spine tingling tales of terror to haunt your dreams. Actually, these stories are not that terrifying, but I'll do my best. So sit back and I'll tell you the story of a specter that roams the Hollywood Hills, a hotel that many leave in terror, and a mysterious woman who dances and disappears. All this on the 163rd episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for Coffee and Terror. I am Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. Now, I must apologize for this podcast being a week late, but I was pretty busy last weekend. And anyway, it's a lot closer to Halloween than if I would have told this a week ago. Because it's October, and October is Halloween month on Coffee with Jeff. And I'd like to make another apology before I get started. Last episode, I credited the story idea to Sharon. The story was not suggested by Sharon, but Shannon. I've sent Shannon an apology with an explanation that sometimes I have trouble reading my secretary's handwriting. And by secretary, I mean me. I have trouble reading my own handwriting once in a while. And it's also come to my attention that some folks didn't take my warning about the nature of last week's show seriously. The crimes I talked about last episode were uh, awful, and I promise not to have stories like that too often, but when I do, I will always warn you ahead of time. And today's story is not one of those. It's about ghosts, supposedly real ghosts. And the thing about real ghost stories, they're usually more charming than scary. So let's get on with it. And let me just tell you, you've been warned. Long ago, on a cold, dark night, in this peaceful New England village, something happened. Something too terrifying to remember. Something too frightening to forget. Something that has remained a secret until now. (laughs) Is anyone else seeing things? Am I the only one having nightmares? (laughs) The men. The evil, silence. Dad, I'm telling you, something happened. I'm telling you something. I think he may have been murdered. The house, the fear, the nightmare, the vengeance, the terror, the truth, ghost story. (laughs) The time has come to tell the tale. You've seen it in about every TV show or film that takes place in Los Angeles, California. It always seems to be used as an establishing shot. High up in the hills of Mount Lee, with its 34-foot high letters, is the iconic Hollywood sign. It looks down at a city where dreams of fame and riches can come true, but more times than not, heartbreak and failure. It was originally built in 1923 as Hollywoodland, with the purpose of advertising the name of a new, segregated, whites-only housing development in the hills above the Hollywood District of Los Angeles. In 1949, the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce rebuilt the sign, taking the word land off the end of the sign to reflect the district, not the housing development. Here's the thing that you might not know. The sign or the area around the sign may be haunted. At least that's what some believe. One summer, Megan Santos was taking her usual late-night jog on Griffith Trails, hiking paths that are high above Los Angeles. Stopping to sneeze, an overpowering scent of gardenias filled the air. She was overcome by what she described as a weird feeling. Shivers ran through her body as she saw something she will never forget. There was this woman with blonde hair, and she seemed to be like walking on air, she told Vanity Fair Hollywood. I immediately ran the other way. Devon Morgan, a Beechwood Canyon resident, had her own sighting. She also noticed a woman on the trail while she was exercising. When she had got to the spot where she had seen the woman, she was gone, but the scent of gardenias filled the air. She looked very strange to me, Morgan commented. She had a very etheric quality. Instead of walking, she almost seemed to glide like she was floating. She didn't look like she was a ghost, but there was something very, very strange about her, and very soft-looking. These women weren't the first or last to see this mysterious specter. It comes and goes, lost and wandering around the Hollywood Hills. Sightings began in nineteen forty, not long after the original H of the sign collapsed. She is usually dressed in clothes that are from another time, and her appearance is usually accompanied by the smell of gardenias. This vision of a young woman might be the lost soul of Peg Entwistle. Peg was born on the fifth of February, nineteen o eight, and spent her early life in West Kensington, London. After her father and mother divorced, Peg and her father immigrated to the United States. At the age of 17, she was offered work at the New York's famed Theater Guild. Eventually, she became a very successful Broadway actor. After a failed marriage and a series of unsuccessful plays, her confidence was shaken. She decided to head west to California to try her luck there. The year was 1932 during the height of the Great Depression. She immediately got the role in a play called The Mad Hopes, starring Billy Burke. The reviews for the play were not very good, and it played to mostly small audiences, closing after two weeks. Again, Peg was downhearted and depressed, feeling like a failure. It appears she was given a big break when she was cast in the RKO David O'Selznick film Thirteen Women. It was a good role, originally. Unfortunately, Peg's character was a lesbian, and this was in the era of the Hayes Code. The Hayes office dictated what could and couldn't be shown in Hollywood films, and they had a big problem with same sex relationships. Peg's 16 minutes of screen time in the original cut was trimmed to less than four. Soon after, Peg and a number of other female actors' contracts with RKO were not renewed. On the 16th of September, 1932, Peg Endwistle had dinner with her uncle, whose home she had been living in. To her uncle, she looked well-composed when she left, telling him that she was going to buy a book and then meet a friend. Instead, she climbed the slopes of Mount Lee, up to the place where the Hollywood sign stood. A wooden ladder leaned against the 50-foot-high H of the sign. Putting down her jacket and purse, she began to climb, not stopping even when one of her shoes fell to the ground. Two days later, a young woman who had been hiking in the area walked into the local police station. She didn't identify herself, but she left a shoe, purse, and jacket that she had found near the Hollywood sign. She also said she had discovered a body at the bottom in a ravine. She produced a note that she had found in the purse that read, I am afraid, I am a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain and It was signed p e It is said that the spirit of peg and whistle still depressed and lost, haunts those hills where she fell to her death. Maybe in death she still longs for the life that she never received on earth. Or maybe she's looking for her other shoe. Yes, by cutting off cable TV and the beer supply, I can ensure an honest winter's work out of those lowlifes. Sir, did you ever stop to think that maybe it was doing this that caused the previous caretakers to go insane and murder their families? Hmm, perhaps. Tell you what, we come back and everyone's slaughtered, I owe you a Coke. (laughs) what do you think, Marge? All I need is a title... I was thinking along the lines of no TV and no beer make Homer something, something. Go crazy? Don't mind if I do! In 1974, a young writer who was a recovering alcoholic with two previously published novels was looking for inspiration for his next work. He opened up a map of the United States and randomly pointed. Looking down, his finger was on Boulder, Colorado. With his wife, he checked into the Stanley Hotel on October 30th, 1974. It was nearing the end of the season and the hotel was getting ready to close for the winter. So they were the only two guests. Considering he was the author of horror novels, it was appropriate that he was given room 217 a place that was rumored to be haunted. That night, he and his wife had dinner in the empty grand dining room. He said of that night, "'Except for our tables, all the chairs were up on the tables, so the music is echoing down the hall, and, I mean, it was like God had put me there to hear this and see all those things.'" After dinner, the couple met a bartender named Grady. The two only spent one night in the hotel, but as the young author slept, he began to dream. That night I dreamed of my three-year-old son running through the corridors, looking back over his shoulder, eyes wide, screaming. He was being chased by a fire hose. I woke up with a tremendous jerk sweating all over, within an inch of falling out of bed. I got up lit a cigarette, sat in a chair, and looked out the windows of the Rockies. And by the time the cigarette was done, I had the bones of the book firmly set in my mind. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. and He came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amuck and uh, killed his family with an axe. You can rest assured, Mr. and that's not going to happen with me. The writer was, of course, Stephen King. And that night, he and his wife Tabitha stayed at the Stanley Hotel. The story he dreamt that night became one of his most celebrated books, The Shining. In the book, an alcoholic novelist is driven mad by a haunted hotel he and his family are spending the winter. How much of the book was made up in Stephen King's mind, and how much was inspired by the Stanley Hotel? What did the Kings experience that night in room 217? Freeland Oscar Stanley The man who invented the famed Stanley Steamer Automobile was one of the richest men in America. He built the Stanley Hotel in 1903. He was from Maine and was diagnosed with life-threatening tuberculosis. He traveled to Colorado at the insistence of his doctors, who thought that the fresh, dry air and sunlight would do him good. He fell in love with Boulder, so much so that he built the now-famous hotel. Every summer, for the rest of his life, he would stay there, only returning to Maine when the hotel shut down for the winter. It was one of the most luxurious resorts in the world, and one of the only early 20th century hotels to be powered by electricity. It was a nice, friendly place to stay until the night of June 25, 1911. It was a dark and stormy night. Seriously, it was a night of violent thunderstorms, and it was dark due to it, well, being night. Anyway, it all happened in room 217. You see, the guests were enjoying the comforts of the hotel as Mother Nature raged outside. The crashing of thunder, the flashing of lightning, and such. After one of these bright flashes, the guests found themselves in complete darkness. The lodgers were quickly moved to the lobby, while the staff began lighting the backup gas lamps. Chambermaid Elizabeth Wilson crept up to room 217 to check on things with a lit candle. Elizabeth was unaware that gas was leaking into the room. How could she know? The gas in the hotel, as was common back in the day, had no smell. She opened the door with her candle's flame flickering and then a massive explosion. Ten percent of the hotel was damaged about the entire West Wing. As luck would have it, the all-wooden building was saved because the blast was a compression explosion and it actually put out its own fire. But poor Elizabeth Wilson, who is said to haunt the hotel to this day, suffered most by the accident. Falling through the floor, she landed in the McGregor dining room located directly under room 217. She lay there, both her ankles broken. But that wasn't the end for Elizabeth Wilson, for she survived. In fact, the hotel even paid for her medical bills. And after she recovered, she became the head chambermaid and worked in the hotel until her death in 1950. It was then, it is said, that she began haunting the hotel, especially room 217. They say that ghosts are the dead who haven't moved on because of unfinished business here on Earth. What is Elizabeth Wilson's unfinished business, and why does she still haunt the Stanley Hotel? I'm sure you children can see why. And if you do, explain it to me, because I don't get it. There are others that say the hotel is haunted by Freeland Oscar Stanley. Stanley died at the age of 91 in his home in Maine, but you never know and then there was an irishman named lord dunraven who although he never stayed at the hotel lived on the property twenty years before it was built he is said to haunt room 401 room 428 has a ghost cowboy many women have been awakened to find themselves being kissed by the spirit rooms 407 302 and 413 are also infested with spectres Even the concert hall has a man named Paul who occasionally whispers for people to get out after hours. And some have heard the ghost of Flora Stanley, the wife of Freeland Oscar, playing the piano. Don't take my word for it. Meg Holloway wrote on Facebook, I have visited the Stanley several times. Once in the stillness of the afternoon, I heard children's voices from outside. "'I looked out the window and walked around. "'No one was there. "'I've often wondered about it.'" Robin Dutchlick wrote, "'I've stayed there only once. "'I woke up with the feeling that somebody was watching me. "'I immediately got nauseous and broke out in a cold sweat. "'Haven't visited since.'" And Christy Haynes had this story to tell. "'I worked there for two years. "'Was typically too busy to notice anything.'" We mostly tried to scare each other. If you do a quick search of the internet, especially YouTube, you can find story after story of hotel visitors experiencing ghosts and video after video of captured sightings of spirits. And it might be just me, but all the stories that I found seems to have taken place after the book and the film The Shining. And from what I can tell, the hotel does a pretty good job of keeping these mysteries alive. They even offer haunted hotel tours. One interesting fact is the Stanley Kubrick film of The Shining was filmed at the Timberline Lodge in Oregon. The Timberline Lodge insisted that the room number be changed from 217 to 237 because they feared that people wouldn't want to stay in a haunted hotel room. Once the film came out, room 217 at the Stanley Hotel became the most requested room in the building. <laughs> Some night, huh? On this very night, ten years ago, along the same stretch of road, in a dense fog just like this, I saw the worst accident I ever seen. There was this sound, like a garbage truck, dropped off the Empire State Building. And when they finally pulled the driver's body from the twisted, burning wreck, it looked like this. (laughs) Do you think you can handle one more ghost story? This ghostly tale is a local legend, one that I can remember hearing about a lot when I was a child. And it all began in 1939. Jerry Paulus was a regular at the Liberty Grove Hall and Ballroom in the Southside Chicago neighborhood of Burlington Park. One night he noticed a young blonde woman in a white dress. He asked her to dance and she said yes. As they danced, Jerry noticed that she was Ice cold to the touch and was unusually quiet. He commented, cold hands, warm heart, to which she made no reply. His attempts to learn a little bit more about her only resulted in learning her name. She said she was Mary and she lived on the south side of town on Damien Avenue. After they danced all night, Jerry offered Mary a ride home, in which she accepted. As they walked down the street, she said, "'Well, you might as well take me down to Archer Road.' Jerry asked why. That wasn't anywhere near where she said she lived. And she responded, "'No, I want to go to Archer Road.' So Jerry took her where she wanted to go. While driving, she suddenly ordered him to stop the car. They were in front of Resurrection Cemetery in suburban Justice, Illinois. Mary told him not to follow her, and she quickly got out. As Jerry watched, Mary vanished right before his eyes as she seemed to go right through the front gates of the cemetery. The next day, Jerry found the address Mary had originally given him. An older woman answered the door. Jerry asked if Mary was her daughter. She told him that the girl he danced with couldn't possibly have been her daughter as her daughter had died five years earlier. It was then he noticed a picture of her daughter on the piano. It was Mary, the girl he had met the night before. This began the legend of Resurrection Mary. In an article in the Suburban Tribune on January 31, 1979, a local cab driver named Ralph told his story. It was a Thursday night. It would have been two weeks ago. I was lost, basically. I dropped a big spender way the hell down in Palos Heights or Hills or something like that, and was trying to make my way back to the tollway. I just turned on Archer, down there where it's still a lonely road, especially at midnight. And there she was, standing there with no coat on, by the entrance to this little shopping center. No coat! And it was one of those real cold ones, too. She didn't put out her thumb or nothing like that. She just looked at my cab. Of course, I stopped. I figured maybe she had car trouble or something. She hopped right into the front seat. She had on this fancy white dress, like she had been to a wedding or something, and those new kinds of disco shoes with the straps in that. She was a looker, a blonde. But I didn't have any ideas like that. She was young enough to be my daughter. 21 tops. I asked her where she was going, and she said she had to get home. I asked her what was wrong, if she had car trouble or what, but she really didn't answer me. She was fuzzy. Maybe she had a couple of drinks or something, or was just tired, I don't know. Okay, the only thing she says really was, the snow came early this year, or the snows came early this year, or like that. Other than that, she just nodded when I asked something, as if we were supposed to keep going to Archer. She was just looking out the window at the snow and the trees and that. Her mind was a million miles away. Maybe she smoked something or something. Who knows? A couple of miles up Archer there, she jumped with a start like a horse and said, Here, here! I hit the brakes. I looked around and didn't see any kind of house. Where, I said. And then she sticks out her arms and points across the road to my left and says, There! That's when it happened. I looked to my left, like this, at this little shack. And then I turned, and she was gone, vanished. The door never opened. May the good Lord strike me dead. It never opened. Richard Crowe, a local historian and folklorist at the time of the sightings, said, I think of all the ghost stories worth believing in, Resurrection Mary is the best documented. The witnesses I've found are remarkably level-headed. And they're primarily blue-collared, middle-class types who have steady jobs and have no other major claims to psychic encounters in their lives. One of these stories was from Bob Main, who managed a nightclub called Harlow's in 1973. He told his story. She was about 24 to 30 years old, 5 foot 8 or 9, slender, with yellow blonde hair to her shoulders, and she wore it in these big spool curls coming down from her forehead. She was really pale, like she had powdered her face and her body. She had on this old dress that was yellow, like a wedding dress left in the sun. She sat right next to the dance floor. She wouldn't talk to anybody. She danced all by herself, this pirouette-typed dance. People were saying, who is that bizarre chick? Bob said when he and the others tried to talk to her, she would only shake her head and seem to look right through you. Bob saw her twice and said, But the strangest thing was, even though we carted everybody who came in there, I worked the door, and there were waitresses and bartenders and people there, nobody either night ever saw her come in and never saw her leave. For years, researchers have been trying to figure out the identity of Mary and have gone through all the graves in Resurrection Cemetery, and there are a few possible candidates. A woman named Mary Begrovey, who is said to have been buried at Resurrection Cemetery, was killed in an auto accident in 1934. But she didn't look like the ghost Mary in the way she's described by witnesses. And then there's Mary Miskowski, who was killed crossing the street one night in October in 1930 on her way home from a costume party. And some believe it's Anna Majeria Norkis, who died in 1927 in an auto accident while on her way home from the O. Henry Ballroom. Maybe we'll never know the truth about any of these spirits. One thing seems to be certain. These ghosts, like all those that are said to be real, don't seem to have any real evil intentions or have come back to seek revenge on the living or any of that stuff one sees in the movies. They seem to be just checking things out for a while, then disappear. And I have to admit it, I'm a little disappointed. I was hoping to find true ghost stories like one tells around the campfire late at night. Something truly terrifying. If you know of one of these, a suggestion for next year's Halloween show, please reach out and get a hold of me. You know where to find me. Well, thanks for coming. Grab a candy bar on your way out. No, sorry, I've eaten all the Reese's peanut butter cups, but I think there's some Snickers at the bottom of the bowl. Hey, only one per person. One. Thanks. Bye-bye. Send in the next group. Yeah, come on in. I've, I've got a few ghost stories to tell you. Come on. Sit around by the fire. And so the next night, the ghost returned to the haunted cabin. And he said to the campers, none of you really believe in me. So I'll have to prove my power. And the next morning, when the campers woke up, All of their old noses had grown back. Quickly, before I go, I just wanted to say that in all of these legends, these ghost stories, details vary depending on who you listen to. And I did my best just to haunt it up a little for today's episode. So thanks for listening. And now the ending credits. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the PsyCon Network to my wife of 34 years for being my wife of 34 years david metzger for designing the coffee with jeff logo kelly Rickard for writing and performing the coffee with jeff theme and to all of you who listen to the show every week thank you so much and of course a special shout out to all those that repost this on facebook and twitter you have a special place in my bloody heart i'll be back next week with another story back to a traditional coffee with jeff tale Coffee with Jeff, coffee, coffee with Jeff, coffee. I'll have Jeff's new day. Coffee with, Jeff. coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, or coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. You